Okay, we're in week two of our new series called Singing the Blues, Psalms of Lament. Um, I was reading this week, and I found this interesting, that Bono, and if you read that Bono's doing it, I think that makes it cool, does it? It means that you're on, culturally on the right page. Bono has written an introduction onto the Psalms, and he referred to the Psalms as the original blues. So, Paul is so on the money, isn't he? Paul comes up with these titles, singing the blues. I don't know if he saw that Bono had done it first. I don't know if Bono saw that Paul had done it first. I don't know which way around it works, but it means that we're on kind of the right page. And I've, I've, as I've looked into, occasionally my job gets really cool and you get to research stuff that you're really interested in. So I researched what the blues was, where that comes from, and you find that the blues, the origin of the blues, there are, and if you're a musical buff, deal with me afterwards, not on the platform. But the origin of the blues starts deep south America. Mississippi, sort of Mississippi Delta, and the birth of the blues, it seems to me, comes out of a movement called the spiritualist movement, the slaves of America. This is, this is where, so the sad songs of the blues, and you also got the other side of the coin is the gospel, the blues and the gospel, born out of spiritualists' songs. And I've, as I've looked into this, because I've had a really like idealistic view of the Psalms, I, I read Psalm 23 and I see David. See the sun coming down the hill, David kicking back. I imagine him with a notepad. I'm sure he can't have had one because I'm sure that's not how it worked. And I just imagine this idyllic guy just in this idyllic setting, all the sheep actually be- behaving exactly as they're supposed to and David just scribbling away. I imagine it being like that. But actually the truth of some of these psalms, they are set in such, it's nothing like that actually. They are set in such dire circumstances. So think on and, it, and it's just a helpful picture to have in your mind. And if you, ever, if you ever look up some of these spiritualist songs, some of the very early bluesy stuff from like the 1900s, I think it's the blues sort of seems to start around there. If you go back a bit further, these songs are beautiful. But why are they beautiful? Because they express the reality of living in absolute... I'm trying to think of a better word than hell. I feel like I shouldn't say hell, but it, you know, it's like that. You are a slave... Some guy has raped your sister the other day. Your mother and parents might have been killed. You've been dragged out of your family. You're working with, um, with whip marks on your back. You're doing a job that you really don't want to do. And you're singing in that reality. And these, these, these spiritualist songs are like that. They are songs that are soaked in the stories of their lives. But with this, with this hope, with this certainty that there is something more. And that makes the song so beautiful. And Paul asked the question the other week, and I think it's a question we should keep asking. Why, why do we have these sad songs? Why did the people need these, sad, these, these songs? And, it, and it, is not, it is not that David wrote these just to be creative, just to show off his writing talents, rich though they were. And the, these slaves didn't sing these songs particularly to pass the time of day. They needed to sing these songs. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever watched Roots. I don't know how, it feels like Roots is pretty historically accurate. Sometimes you, when, you, when you capture this, you know, this image is captured of a slave who will look across to another, another slave in the field and start the song. And it's almost like they're saying, we need these words of hope right now. Because without these words of hope, we don't really have very much. We need to know that there is something more than this. We need to share the sadness of our story. And that's what Psalms... Uh, and you can ask yourself the same question. Have a look through the CDs 
or your, if you're young and cool, the playlists and whatever else you've got. Yeah, or you're all laughing at me because I, you can see that I don't know what I'm talking about in this moment. The playlists and the soundtracks. And you'll know you've got the sad songs. Why are they in there? Why have you got the sad songs? Because every now and again, and you'll, you'll say to your friends, oh, that's a guilty pleasure. I don't really listen to that. But it's in there because you need the sad songs. Sometimes you need that song so you can cope, so you can share the trauma of it with, with whoever it was that wrote it, so that you've got a way to hope for the future. So first little thing, just to, just to kind of maybe set the scene. Forget David and the sheep running into the pen, all idyllic. Remember the reality of some of these stams were, were, were beautiful and were made beautiful because of the terror and the trauma that they faced with this certainty of God underneath it. The next thing I want you to think about, and hold, yeah, hold, this, hold this near to your, to your heads. Near to your heads, that's not a thing. Consider this deeply. The, re- the reality, and this has struck me as I've gotten a bit older, because you don't think, I don't think you think like this when you're younger, is the speed at which life can unravel. The speed at which life can unravel and fall apart. When you're younger, I think anyway, I remember looking up at my dad and other figures like that, and you see these people that you think are going to be around forever, and there is a kind of certainty about things somehow. And yet when you when you become a grown-up, which I keep having to remind myself, I am one of the grown-ups now. I really should know what life is all about. And you realize that life is not like that. Governments can completely crumble. Ideologies that we, help, we hold fall apart. Philosophies that we have come unstuck. Big things, things that we are certain about just fall away. Sometimes life just falls apart around us. Actually, that is the kind of tightrope of life that we walk. And sometimes it feels really safe, doesn't it? Sometimes life, you just think, I'm fine. I'm fine, I'm fine. And one of the things I, I think I realize is that actually we walk this life that's fine, that's fine, that's fine, right next to a cliff edge that we could fall off at any point. We, that's, that's the journey of life. That is the reality of life because stuff happens, really bad stuff happens, doesn't it, all the time. You only have to watch the news one night to realize or think about a friend that you've got. Big stuff happens in our life and it kind of, it kind of can unravel us. And maybe, maybe you're shaking your head and going, Ash, you've got it wrong. I am together. You're barking up the wrong tree with me. I, I, I am solid inside. I am firm and fixed in my opinions. But for me, sometimes, some of the big stuff comes along. Health, financial worries, family trauma, something like that, something big that just hits you. Maybe one or two of them hit you at the same time. And all of a sudden, you're kind of unraveled, and the core of you is kind of exposed and the things that you, that you think you're certain about just become vulnerable for a second. Doubt hits you. Sometimes it feels like out of nowhere. You think, I'm solid, I'm certain, I'm certain, I'm certain. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you start to question who you are. Just often, Paul said last week, in the nighttime. It feels like, it feels like all this stuff happens in the nighttime, doesn't it? And you start to think, am I, am I a good parent? Am I actually a good person? And here's one of the things I want us to think about, and you're definitely not going to nod your head or say amen if you're a Christian to this, is that this, this sometimes impacts our faith. So no, good, nobody's amening, but it does. Paul named it last week, and I thought it was really important. Doubts, every now and again. Doubts creeping. What on earth do we do when life falls apart, we're exposed 
and we look up to the sky again, as we've done many times before with certainty, and go, is this, have I got this right? Is this real? So some statistics for you. I do enjoy a statistic. And these are, um, I've, I've quoted statistics before, and I've pulled them off the internet, and sometimes somebody said, that's a rubbish statistic, that's not right. So these are good statistics. This is Ipsos, 50% of the world today believe in a deity. I thought that was really interesting. I expected that to be a lot lower. I don't know about you. I just thought that would be way lower than that. And I, and I read around it a little bit, and actually, it seems most of Africa have some concept of a, of a deity. Most of South America, even America, have a concept of a deity. And it means all sorts of different things, but they have this idea that there is God. Here's another statistic for you. So initially, I was like, oh, these are encouraging statistics. They might not be useful for my talk. And then I found this one. It's from Barna. If you want to look it up, 65% of Christians, so this is not just people who've got a concept of God, this is Christians, say at some point in their life they have experienced serious doubt about their faith. 65, that's, so if you divvy the room up, that's, it's not, not far off most of us. And that, they're just the people that were brave enough to go, yeah, I've, I've doubted this stuff. It creeps in. Here's some quotes to just kind of back this up and, and just get us to think about it and wrestle with it. This is from Something you wouldn't expect to call like this to be from is John Calvin says, Surely we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. And sometimes when I see my kids working stuff out, doubt is almost, when I see them doubting stuff, and in different ways they doubt all sorts of things, even, you know, they talk to me about questions they've got about God, and when I hear them doubt, I think, well, you're thinking about it. You're working it out. Charles Spurgeon says this. He's a famous, brilliant, pipe-smoking Christian preacher. Well worth a listen to his sermons. I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is time for us to doubt him. He allows us to think that this kind of thing happens to us. And my my go-to guy for a quote is Mr. C.S. Lewis. He's the best. And I've not... I know you, when you're a preacher, you're supposed to pick the one quote that's supposed to just nail it, but I'm picking, a, I'm picking a lot of quotes because I think they're all ace, first and foremost, and I'm just not good at editing myself down, but as well because I want you to know the breadth of this thing. It exists in the world that we occupy. C.S. Lewis says, I think the trouble with me is lack of faith. Often when I pray, I wonder if I am not posting letters to a non-existent address. So, Ash, where are you going with this? Are you trying to you're trying to stir up doubts within us. I'm not trying to stir up doubts within us. I'm trying to be real about this faith that we have, and I'm trying to get us to think about it. Because of all the questions, it's funny, isn't it? What questions do you ask other people at church? What's your go-to question? What do you say? To- I talk about sport a lot. It, it, we are pretty superficial sometimes, aren't we? We love each other in Christ, and then we'll say... Did you watch the footy? The weather's nice. And we do all this stuff. But we'd, we're not ever going to ask. We're not ever going to ask, often ask. And maybe, you, maybe, again, maybe you'll say, Ash, you've got us wrong. We do. We're not often going to ask the probing questions of faith. How's your, how's your faith? What was the last thing you prayed? Because we're terrified that the person will be exposed and go, oh, actually, I've not prayed for ages. Or worse still than that, they'll turn around and say, my prayer life's great. What about you? And you'll go, oh man, I ain't prayed for ages. Because that's real life, isn't it? It's not something 
We talk about often. Something I want you to think about. Doubting is like choking. If you've ever, there's some horrific stats on people that choke to death. It's all, this is, I know, and you're like, where are we going now? But I'll get there. You're all right. People that get a bit of, in a restaurant, you get a bit of food stuck in your throat. You, I, I've had this. You're immediately like, oh. You're like, oh, this is embarrassing. Oh, and I'll exit. It's the worst thing to do in the world to do that. People go into the toilet and choke and often die because nobody can give them the thing, the Heimlich maneuver or a slap around the back or whatever it is. You don't get that. Choking, you are saved from choking when you've got people around you. And doubt is just like that. One of the things we do when we doubt our faith is we doubt alone. We just do it on our own. We stew on it and we get troubled by it on our own. This is one of the things that we need to talk about, which is why we need to sing the blues, which is why we need to open the Psalms and read the Psalms through together. So we're going to look at a Psalm that, of David when life just goes off a cliff. Life falls off a cliff for him and he screams out to God what sounds like doubt, but which is actually hope. So I don't know if you could pop the text up just for a second and maybe have it in your mind. And I need to, not many of the Psalms give us the, um, that's great, not many of the Psalms give us the background and the context, but this one does. So it's, when you're preaching, you're like, oh, that's great. I've got a backstory to go to. And, and you'll know, I think a lot of you will know some of this story. Um, it's in 2 Samuel, sort of chapter 12 through to about chapter 18 is the backstory. David sees Bathsheba on the roof. Do you know that story? And, and completely abuses his position as king and just thinks, I can have this beautiful woman. And does have her, and she falls pregnant. And, and then a, hus- a husband who's away at war comes back. So I'm, I'm going to try and tell the story as best I can. Husband who's away at war comes back and, and doesn't know about this yet. And David's, David all of a sudden is confronted with the man who is the, you know, the real husband of Bathsheba. And he does something I don't know if it's worse than what he's already done. It's just as bad. He sends him off to the front lines of battle, and he's killed. This is King David. This is a man who is close to God's own heart. This is an an awesome guy, a guy that we stand up in the Bible and commend in the Bible, and yet he's screwing up colossally in this moment. And Nathan the prophet comes to him and gives him what prophets do. He gives him the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says out of your own household... I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. That ends up being his son in the story. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did this thing in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And there is another verse that, um, that comes up. It says, the sword will never depart from your house. The sword will never depart from your house. So David's done this terrible thing, and there are horrific consequences. And here's just a few of them. His son, so there is, there is one of the consequences is that one of his sons, Absalom, as he comes back and he takes his throne, as part of his evidence of his power, he publicly, and this is, I've not watched Game of Thrones yet, but I imagine this is, this is Games of Thrones, he publicly sleeps with all of his wives and his concubines. And it's kind of like this, just this sickening horror. And, and, you, and you, so you're reading this story through the eyes of David and you realize that David's world is falling apart. One of his sons, Ammon, fancies, is incest, fancies his half-sister and rapes her. 
And then the other brother, this is Absalom again, he just, you read a couple of chapters where he's just kind of filled with rage. He's just like raging mad, like completely consumed by rage. And he kills the brother, Ammon. So you're looking at it from David's eyes. One of your kids has raped another one. Then another one of them's killed that one. And then Absalom, he, you, know, you, read the, you read through the story, he kind of gets so consumed by rage, he, just, he goes on just to do terrible things. And it, it, eventually he looks at David's throne and he just says, I want that. I could have that. And you read the text and it's like Absalom's this good-looking guy. He's offering good wisdom. And, and as the chapters sort of progress, out of nowhere, it's like a military coup and he grabs the throne from his own dad. And he, he comes charging into Jerusalem and David and his closest friends realize we are absolutely done for here. And they all go running out of Jerusalem completely shamed. And Nathan the prophet said, this is going to happen. I'm going to bring shame on your house. And there's, guy, and there's pictures and stories of guys on the hillside who are throwing stones at David as he leaves. This great man, possibly, I don't know my history well enough to be certain about this, but it seems like he would have been one of the most powerful men in the world at this time. And he runs out of his city knowing that his son is violating his wife and his wives, and his name is completely disgraced. And he runs where all, the, where all the characters in the Bible seem to run. He runs into the desert, and he hides in the desert. And the story progresses. Absalom's army gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, there's a big, massive army, and David's out in the desert, and he's looking like he's absolutely done for. Sometimes, and you're not going to believe this, but sometimes life is like that for us. Hopefully, not incest and not the fear of death or anything like that, but sometimes, doesn't it feel like the masses of the world bring a real threat to your faith? Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Have you ever, sometimes you look at your work colleagues and you think, these are, these are good people, these are people that I love, and then other times you think it feels like, as a Christian, you are going out of your way to organize yourself into a mass army that just completely destroys any chance that my faith has got in this place. Do you ever feel like that? Being a Christian just feels feels like everybody else isn't. It feels like your faith kind of stands alone in, in that environment. You ever had that sort of feeling? You just feel completely isolated? You ever watched um, some of the stuff that the BBC, and I'm, I've been a fan of the BBC, and some of the stuff that they put out there, which just makes you think that Christianity is just ridiculous. It's just a ridiculous notion. And, and this news that is presented isn't just news that's presented. It's almost like an assault on your faith. That's how it feels. Sometimes when when calamity comes into our life, the bad stuff that comes into our life, it doesn't just feel like the bad stuff that comes into our life. Sometimes that, that in itself feels like an assault on our faith. When we're hit with big troubles, whatever they may be, they don't just feel like trouble. Sometimes they feel like an, a spiritual attack and we feel completely isolated. Sometimes Christianity can feel like a really, really lonely place. And I've read the stats that say that 50% of the world believe in a deity, but it doesn't always, in fact, it doesn't often feel like that, particularly where we are in the UK, does it? It feels like, sometimes it feels like, with the way that the public and media present Christianity, that it's very unlikely indeed. So what do we do in this circumstance? Here's what David does. Lord, how many are my foes? exclamation mark. He's screaming this out. How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, 
and he answers me from his holy mountain. When I lie down and sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies in the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked, for the Lord, from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. I want us to think for a second about what the Psalms do what they actually do. I'm going to read you a quote um, from, a, from a theologian from the first couple of centuries, and I've, I am physically unable to say his name, but I'm going to try for the, f- because you need to hold me accountable, and I'm not just making it up. Anastasius, and I say it differently and more wrong every time, but somebody with a similar name to that existed in about the fourth century. And it, it, often with these theologians, they're actually, you think that they just stand there and uh, pontificate and think about stuff, but actually they're, they're really fun stories to read. They're often getting chased for their lives much of the time, and they, and they really vehemently, like pastorally believe in something that the world needs to know about God, and because of this, they're getting chased. Well worth a read. That was a aside. You don't have to read. You don't have to read about them. And he, but Anethius says this, the Psalms have a unique place in the Bible because while most of the Scripture speaks to us, Psalms speaks for us. So just think about that. The Psalms have a unique place in the Bible because while most of the Scripture speaks to us, Psalms speak for us. Now, I don't want to hold too hard and fast to that, but it's really interesting to think about. This is the script that we need to go to to help us in the really difficult times. A guy called Christopher Ashe says this, The Psalms are an authorized response, the word God gives us with which to speak up to Him. There's a sense in which thinking about what happens in some of these stories. The Psalms are this perfect love letter, a love letter that exists from humanity to God that is absolutely perfect, authorized by God, put within the canon of Scripture as a way for us to speak to Him when we are in the dark hour, when we are completely stuck, when we have nowhere else to go. And we went camping the other week, um, and I... I don't know how, how you get on when you disappear into the loft to get stuff. I can be gone for days and weeks. I don't know. I love the loft. It's just full of junk, but I love the loft. And I got up there, and I was flicking through all my uh, bits and bobs. And I am somebody who keeps a lot. I, I'm not a hoarder, but I keep a lot, I keep a lot of stuff. Maybe I am a hoarder. <laughs> I, um, and a lot of st- so I keep me and Jude um, for a while. When we were younger, we, uh, she lived in Africa, my wife Jude, and we were writing back and forth, and we've kept all these letters. And, and uh, the box was, was half open, and I was flicking back, and it was, and it was terrifying. I realized there was a, a, a romantic, horny, mis, misguided 18-year-old lad who was writing letters to, but to, his, to his girlfriend in Africa. But what I did realize, what I was held to, so I didn't just read my love letters. I also flicked to, I used to journal quite a bit. And it wasn't journaling, it was, I, w- I would just write down, like, I used to write poems, I used to write poems, didn't I, and all that sort of stuff. And I used to just uh, write about where, you know, my ideals on life. And it sounds pretty pathetic now to say it out loud. But when I went back up to read them, it was like there was this ideal. I I was able to reread what, I want to say what true love was like. But in a sense, maybe what it was when when I was first going out with Jude, you kind of bring back these letters and you... You realize in some senses, man, the distance that you've traveled from, from some, of those, some of those ideals you've got. It's kind of like this blueprint of when a soul is completely given over to somebody else, 
you write words like this. And when I journaled as a young teenager, you've got just these grand ideals and sort of wishes for life, and you look back and you think, oh, none of them are there anymore. And and one of the things it did to me was just realize some of the distance away from that perfection you can be. And, And sometimes when we look at the Psalms, we realize this, this is kind of authorized blueprint of perfection. So when you read words like, as the deer pants for the water, it's like a love letter, so my soul longs after you. And you're like, man, I've not been there for a while. I've not felt like that about God. Oh, I can't tell you. Maybe it was just when I got saved. Maybe it was then. Maybe I've not been there since. My soul yearns. That's Psalm 42. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And if you, you don't, with Psalms, to find this stuff, and I just found these, I just opened Psalms up and they came spilling out. Psalms is loaded with this stuff. It's this perfect love letter. It's this script for us to talk to God. And it's a script for us to talk to God in all the different circumstances of life. John Calvin quote, he described it as an anatomy of the soul. What he's saying is this, the Psalms, you can pick up the book of Psalms and it'll cover every sort of life experience you could think of. Joy, sadness, every, every single thing. It's all in there. You're helped to express all of them in there. Very quickly, speed up. One of the things that dawned on me as I gla- glossed over the 150, psalm, 150 Psalms is that 66 of them are sad. 66. There's more sad Psalms than there are anything else. There's more laments in Psalms than there are any other kind of psalm. What's the reason for this? You're going to need to know how to talk to God in the sad times. That's the conclusion I came to. There's all these sad songs. And when you look through your own, your own soundtracks, you'll see they'll, they'll be loaded. You'll say, I ain't got sad songs in my soundtracks, and you'll have loads of them. And they're there because you need to find a way to talk in the sad times. Given at church, we don't talk about doubts. Psalms are where we need to put our heads in order to get through the doubts. The Psalms are God's authorized way for our doubts to remain part of the story. We come to church, we read out the Psalms, we read these words, and what we're expressing, look what David's expressing. He's saying, look at all these men that are against me. Verse 1 and 2, you know, look at all these men that are against me. I'm, look at them all. Look at all the people there. What is that? There are doubts. And we are, via the Psalms, allowed to express these through the Psalms. So I wanted to give us, last five minutes, three things that we need to hold on to. Three things, if the Psalms speak for us, there are three things in this Psalm, your take-home points. So continue to look at the Psalms, continue to, to, to see them as this, as this manual for us you know, to speak to God, but there are three points I want us to, to grab from, from particularly this Psalm, and you'll see it in a lot of the Psalms. The first, the first one is to be honest. You see how honest David is? How often do you pray like that? He's saying, we're, we're stuck. Look what's happening. It looks like there's no God whatsoever. It looks like there can't be a God whatsoever. That's, that's kind of the gist of verse 1 and 2. That's his prayer. How often do we pray like that? How often do we pray with that level of honesty about what we're thinking? Something for us to think about. If, 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 if we're in relationships with people, friendships and different kinds of relationships, 
that requires at some point down the line a level of honesty, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? You talk to somebody and you'll say, I think, I think we're friends, but all we ever seem to talk about is the weather. Can you imagine if, if that's the basis of your relationship? They, just, they ask you the same sort of questions over again. It, all the same sort of chat goes on. It gets to a point, I think, when we have friendships, when they blossom to a certain level, when, when there is a frankness about the relationship, when there is an honesty that deprives them. And you say, yes, we are friends. I can be honest with that person. They can be honest with me. Look at that from God's perspective when and think about your own prayer life, and I will think about my prayer life, and how often we, our prayers are, there is a bit of a superficial rhythm to them. Thanks, you know, the, I hope, the, hope you get well soon, and the, the pray tomorrow that we'll, we'll, I might be able to rest up, and we, we go through this kind of rhythm of prayer life, and I wonder sometimes if God's thinking, I wonder when you're going to just talk to me, because I, I know you inside out, I know exactly what's going in there, and you're not talking to me about that. I think God is interested in conversation, honest conversation with us, and I think he's less interested in our kind of performance prayers. First thing, David shows us, pray honestly. If you want us, if you're really stuck, if you are desperate, then tell God. Be desperate. There are lots of exclamation marks in the Psalms. There are, there are lots of times when he's shouting, I think. There are lots of times when he's weeping, there are lots of times when he's on his knees. And there are also loads of times when he grabs a tambourine. And I'd love you to do that. Be honest in your prayer. Second point. And I think sometimes we really need to hear this, don't we? He hears our cry. God hears our cry. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. To the Lord I cry aloud. And he answers me from his holy hill. David says, I know that when I cry aloud to the Lord, he hears what I'm saying. And in the circumstances that David's in, everybody is looking around at him and saying, you've been completely done over. God has forgotten about you. God does not listen to you. And David turns around in the midst of what must be doubt and says, God does hear my cry. He hears what I'm saying. It is an awful feeling, isn't it? Not to be heard. I don't know if you ever have that dream when you're, I have that dream quite a lot. It's a weird one when you're shouting out and nobody can hear. It's a horrible thing. Or sometimes you have, um, you have a conversation on the phone with, on your mobile and you're, and you're chatting away and you're in this big long chat and you, you not realize the, the lines are dropped and you're, you're talking away and, you, and you're, are you there? Are you still there? You're not there. And you feel ridiculous, don't you? you just feel, and it's just like, oh, this is so annoying. Then you're ringing back and you're in conversation again and the same thing happens again. It's so frustrating not to be heard. Or, and this is the biggie, when you've got kids at church or somebody you're talking to who's got kids at church and you're talking to them and they, they, initially they're looking at you and then they're looking over at where the kid is and you're still talking and you think, I could just say anything right now. I could just, I could. And I'm, I'm the per- this is often me, I'm looking. Ethan's gone. He's punching somebody. And the, the other person's still talking to you. And you could, you could, I, and as I'm talking to you, I'm saying, I could just, I could tell you that I've killed somebody this afternoon. And you would still be making the, I'm listening face, but you're not listening. It's a horrible feeling not to be heard. This is something we need to remember about our God. Sometimes we join C.S. Lewis and we say, it feels like these prayers are just going up there. We need to remember, if our prayers come from a heart that is bent towards God, if it's a cry towards God, he hears our prayers. God in heaven, our holy God on his holy hill, hears our prayers. Furthermore, Psalm says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears 
are attentive to their cries. Some of, some of the suggestion in the Psalms is that when we cry to God, he doesn't remain still. He actually moves and his head kind of tilts towards us. Do you know that way? Isn't it a lovely feeling when you, there aren't, we're not good listeners, human beings, and we've got two, two ears and one mouth, and we really should be better than what we are. But when, when you're talking to somebody and somebody gives you the time of the day and they do that thing where they're like, they just draw the conversation out of you. How nice is that when they're like, I'm engaged with you. I'm, I'm going to make good eye contact. I'm, I'm interested in what you want to say. And, and you talk more then, don't you? You express more. Part of the Psalms give us this picture of a God who when we cry out to him, hears us attentively. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. Again, another thing to think about. I, don't, I often lament on my own, and you might do this as well. People of a certain age will have an Alanis Morissette CD or a, an Adele CD, and you'll put it on in the car, and you'll just, and, and this will be your therapy. You'll be like, I'm just going to scream out my lament. Maybe it's another, another band that I've not heard of, and you'll put it on, and that is your like therapy. And you, you go in the car, you turn it up full whack, and you're like, oh, that felt good. Oh, man, I needed to do that. But in a sense, in a sense, that is helpful. I've done it often. But in a sense, those words kind of just, I don't know, they either stay in the car or they disappear up into thin air. When you, when you cry out to God from your car, some of these psalms, God, these words don't just drift up into thin air. God hears these cries. And I, I need you to remember that. When the world, when it feels like everything is against us, when it feels like Christianity can't be real, can it? When, when our work colleagues just kind of dwarf our faith somehow by their opinions, that we have a God who hears our cries. Finally, that God brings peace. But you, so David says, but you, are a shield around me, O Lord. You bring glory on me and lift up my head. I lie down and sleep. It's a brilliant, provocative statement in the Psalms. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I am, I am somebody who struggles with this every now and again. I have, ever since I've been a kid, there are times when I don't sleep well. It feels like my mind can lie dormant all day and then spring into life at midnight. And I've got a million and one great ideas when I need to be asleep, and I don't sleep, and I'm wide awake. And in a sense, when David says, as under the threat and the persecution, and, and, and almost what feels like certain death out in the desert, he just says very confidently, I can fall asleep right now. And I'm very confident that my God, should I need to wake up, can wake me up at any time. What he's saying is, even in the midst of this horrific storm, I can fall asleep, or I can have perfect peace. Thing to think about, why does he get to that place of perfect peace? Because we're searching for peace, aren't we? We are searching for peace. Where's David's peace come from? David just says, I cried out to the Lord, and he heard my cry, and I can rest in peace. It started with a good cry, not a blubbering mess of a cry, <laughs> although sometimes that's quite good too. But he started with a good cry to the right person. As I was thinking about this story, and we'll finish with this, reminded me 
of another story that's in the Gospels about when Jesus is asleep on a boat. It's one of my favorite stories. I've got a lot of favorite stories. It's a great story. Jesus is fast asleep at the bottom of this boat. This storm is raging outside. Just this storm is going absolutely mental outside. Just this horrific storm. And the disciples are like, what's going to happen? We're going to get killed. We're all going to get killed. They come down to the bottom of the boat. Jesus is still fast asleep. He's, you know, just peacefully asleep. They scream at him. They wake him up. Jesus runs, gets up, goes outside, and just talks to the wind and the waves and says, be still, wind and waves. And the disciples, the word I think is fear. The disciples are like terrified. Who, who is this? Who is this? They're just scared to death by what they've seen. I don't know if Jesus goes back to sleep. I don't know what he does after that. But there is this really, there's a couple of helpful points, I think, that come out of this. And one of them is this. When, we're in the, when you're in the middle of the worst storm, you don't need to worry too much about the sea if you're in the boat with the guy who created it. That's probably the first point. If we're in the boat with him, then we could be all right. Second point. It's good to make sure that you're crying out to the right person if you want peace and you want help. Last thing to think about as we close and we'll, the band might come up just now and we'll sing the last song. Something to think about. When was the last time that you cried out to God? It takes a lot of effort to cry out, doesn't it? I've only done it a couple of times. My kids, when my kids got lost on the beach, I think it's happened twice, I built up enough momentum to go, help! Just to shout to the beach, help! You, you embarrass yourself, but what you say is, I, I can't fix any of this. And, and all of a sudden, the fact that you can't fix it and it needs fixed just means that you're able to go, help, in a more masculine, hopefully, voice than that. But you completely expose yourself and you put yourself completely in a vulnerable spot and you say, I can't fix this, help. One of the big points of this psalm is that God wants us to cry out to him. And when, and when we cry out to him, there's this lovely picture, is that he hears us, he answers our prayer, and he can bring us peace. Have you got peace? You could ask uh, me about that after if you want to.